Welcome to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwinniger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a lovely five-star review, and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. Join the crowd. Or follow us at Serengeti Sec on formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> formerly known as Twitter. I wish you here to talk about cybersecurity and technology news headlines. And hopefully you provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take into the office to help protect your organization. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Yeah, log centralization used to be so much easier when you did it at the lumber mill. Yeah, and normalization, just like make them all into squares. Two by fours. Two by fours. Normalization. That's log normalization. (laughs) All right. So the first article is the TSA wants to expand facial recognition to hundreds of airports within the next decade. And this comes to us from the register. So I appreciate that the Brits are looking out for us. Uh, so the TSA in, intends to expand their facial recognition program to screen U.S. air travel passengers to 430 domestic airports in under a decade. Uh, they're currently only trialing this uh, uh, at two airports, apparently. Uh, the D- Detroit Metro and Hartsfield-Jackson uh, in Atlanta. And that makes it only 6% fully operational capacity, I guess. That's actually kind of a surprise. Oh, because it's domestic. Because I, I recently went traveled to Ireland and we had to get, we had to stand in front of a camera and undergo facial recognition to leave the US. But yeah, I guess this is purely for domestic. So you had to do that to leave? Yep. And to get back in. So did they then compare the face that left with the face that came back? Said, hey, know. you're five pounds all... heavier. It was all invisible <laughs> to me. I don't know if you've ever had Irish food, but if anything, it was the other way around. I don't think I have. Not terribly exciting or flavorful. Well, that would be right up my alley, though. <laughs> yeah. You're like, ooh, this is the best. <laughs> and this is the plainest French fries I've ever had. They did not salt their French fries. I actually asked, I asked one of the folks there about it. And they're like, oh, it's so that you can add your own salt. I'm like, but... If you don't add the salt, when it comes out of the fryer, the salt doesn't stick. <sighs> so you just have to, you know, take the French fry and a spoon of salt and eat the French fry and follow it with the salt chaser. <laughs> yeah. yeah just, like, just like you're doing tequila shots, except you do it with French fries. Yeah, exactly. All right. So the TSA says that participation in this biometric mobile, drive, mobile driver's license and digital ID programs are all voluntary. So nothing to worry about. Yeah, you don't have to fly. <laughs> yeah, you can opt out. So they're going to start a pilot, a pilot program that's going to be done at 25 airports that show or or it's being conducted at 25 airports. They fully rolled out to two. They're doing a pilot at 25. And they and according to the, the TSA, it does four things well. Mm. Number one, detect a fake ID, uh, which doesn't even make any sense. You've. Your, your face and your ID are not the same thing. So I don't see how scan your face detects a fake ID. Well, I bet I bet what they're doing is they're scanning the face and then comparing that against the database of all the driver. Of course, that means they have to have access to all the driver's license databases across all the states. Because if they're doing that, then they can potentially write. But I bet they get a lot of false positives where, you know, you change your haircut or you're wearing glasses or something like that. Yeah, but they, they can't do that because they've said the real ID is not a federal ID card. They've said that. 
Yeah, well, I'm the only way I can think that they would do this is if they have access to all that. No, I'm being facetious. Oh, my bad. The government is full <laughs> of a bunch of liars. <laughs> I should have known. Because, of course, they have to have, I mean, because what's the point of scanning Matt's face unless they know what Matt's face is before they see Matt's face? I mean, they get my picture every morning when I log into the Mac, I'm sure. No, and your ring doorbell. And my ring doorbell, yeah. <laughs> they have lots of pictures of me. So they subscribe yeah. to my OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Matt. Didn't recognize him with his clothes on. <laughs> So yeah, they have to have a they have to have a face database to start with. Otherwise, yep. this kind of doesn't make any sense anyway. So okay. The second one's kind of the same as the first one. Verifies the person pictured on the ID card is the same person standing at the TSA podium. Like is that not the yeah. oh wait? Oh that's yeah, not yeah. one of the that's, four key no, things. That's no, that is. Oh, okay. All right. The, the first one is fake ID. Yeah, I see. But if if they're going to compare your face with the picture ID. Can a person not do that? Look at, hey, this is the same person. The This image looks like the same. I mean, bouncers have been doing this for decades now. <laughs> yeah, but the difference is, is if bouncers do it, they don't build up a database of all the places you've <laughs> gone to and your yeah. air travel over time. Well, exactly. We'll get into that in a, in a bit. All right. Number three, it's Quickly and effectively ensures less wait time and happier travelers. But, you know, I thought the whole point of the TSA was security, not to make happy travelers. Uh, so that that's not a, a great reason or, you know, doesn't make sense that the TSA would need to concern themselves with happier travelers. And the last yeah. one is better air. Go ahead. I was going to say, anytime a security company tells you they're doing something for a better user experience, usually that's the right time to ask why, because security and better user experience are not very, very rarely related. Well, especially when you're talking about the government and security. And mm. and the last item is better airport and airplane safety. Uh, but they don't explain how that, that makes it so. It just says that, you know, that's the way it is. And if these are the four... I'm sorry, let me let me quote the TSA press secretary before I go on my tirade. <laughs> it identifies those four as very key and critical elements in identity verification, which are the linchpin for transportation security. And that's the TSA press secretary, Carter Langston. It's like, if this is the best four things that they could come up with as an excuse to implement this, it's terrible. You know, these are terrible reasons for this draconian surveillance system. It doesn't make any sense that this is even useful. Uh, but thankfully, the, the Congress is on it. So Senators Ed Markley, Jeff Jeff Merkel, Merkley, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders have all sent a letter urging the TSA to halt the use of facial recognition te technology. And they sent that le letter in September. So I'm sure that's making real big, I real big waves over there. I'm not surprised to see some of these names on here for sure, but I'm surprised that this is not something they could get bipartisan support on. Because this seems like this also would be something Republicans would care deeply about not giving, because this is the type of thing that could be used just as easily against, you know, right wing, far right folks. Well, it, I, I know there are several Republican con Congress folks that I'm aware of that would sign on to this. I think they just didn't reach out to them. That wouldn't surprise me. So, yeah. And the thing is that the the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, 
says that 2.9 million people fly in the United States every day. And there are only 335 million Americans total. So this is a lot of facial recognition scanning that would be going on. They got to build up their databases for they can watch us. Well, uh, according to Carter, all of those legacy, all of those privacy concerns have been addressed in assessments in working with privacy advocacy groups. The live photos and IDs are overwritten by the next passenger scan. They're only they're only kept in RAM. They're purged when the officer logs off or turns off the machine. And they, the officer is forced to log off every 30 minutes, or I'm sorry, the officers are, are forced to log off after 30 minutes of non-use. And this only happens at the security checkpoints. And, you know, that's that all sounds great, but it's not very believable in, in my opinion. And of course, these these assessments are not public either. And as we mentioned a minute ago, the there's no mention or comment about how the facial data gets into the system in the first place as to be compared against for the scan. So it implies that they already have it, which means that they're probably getting it from the real ID, which has, which is taken, those real ID images are taken with special cameras now for facial recognition. So I think that's exactly where they're getting it. They can't actually say that that's where they're getting it because they've already claimed that that's not a thing that they do with the real ID is centralize that data. So I'm skeptical that this is, that they are doing any of these things that they're doing just based on that alone. But this actually made me start thinking about the, the book Damon by Daniel Suarez that Matt and I reviewed a couple of years ago. The, the, in that book, they put a, a, or they give an FBI agent a lanyard with a, with a QR code on it. And they have him walk down a hallway. And at the end of the hallway, they take away the lanyard. And what they've done while he was walking down that hallway is the QR code identified who he was. And they completely scanned everything about him when he walked down that hallway. So they his height, his face, his gait, and they recorded all that. Now imagine if every every camera, every 20 feet could monitor for all those aspects of a person. From the moment you stepped out of your front door, to the time you came home at night, including all the license plate readers that are go- that are already in existence, there's no place or nothing you could do that the government wouldn't know and and document that you've done it. Now you tie that a- you tie that in with AI, and when you deviate from your routine, they can start asking questions about, "Hey, you normally do this, but today you did that. That seems like all the ordinary for you. I think you might be up to something." And of course, we're talking about this because this is more of the creeping U.S. surveillance state. You know, it, it starts here and next thing you know, it's going to be facial recognition everywhere. You know, it's going to be like the minority report, uh, only worse, probably. And of course, what you can do about it is complain. That's always, <laughs> that's always helpful. That's what we're doing here. Yeah. But if it's true that you can opt out. As long as you can, you need to opt out of this stuff. Because I think if another, uh, surprisingly enough, I think if another uh, enough people actually did opt out of this and they couldn't get anybody per- to participate in it, they would have a hard time pushing this. Uh, so I don't know if you're going if this if that would stop it, but you know maybe you could push it off long enough so so your kids or grandkids have to deal with this and not you. 
All right, log centralization. The end is nigh. It's been a while since we've had an Anton Chivakin blog post, so here it is. Anton Chivakin had a nightmare several months ago. What if in the future you couldn't centralize logs? Oh, no. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> then at the Gartner Security Summit last month, he saw a diagram predicting that the future is decentralized distributed logs. There was a there, They showed a chart where the past was the direct log feed from the endpoint to the sim current is federated log feeds from multiple centralization points and you'll have a cloud centralization point you'll have an on-prem log collector maybe multiple on-prem log collectors and then those feed the sim and the future is distributed and he has some kind of a generic prediction of a decentralized query engine that can pull logs directly from each source which is kind of interesting but we'll get there so the recommendation for decades at this point has been to centralize logs this is becoming more and more difficult as time goes by. It's getting ever more expensive to pay for SIM license. Many companies have multiple cloud providers that centralize their own logs. There are logs that are important for incident response, but not for detections. I don't know if you've run into this, David, but I've certainly heard myself when discussing budget around SIM, like uh, that we bring in, are, are we? do we have any use cases around that log? And if we don't have any use cases around the log, then we don't bring it in. So if for those IR logs, do you bring them into the SIM or do you leave them on the endpoint application until they're needed and then just hope that they're there? There's also SaaS application logs. We mentioned in a previous episode talking about like ticketing systems. If you have a ticketing system that's SaaS, do you even have access to the ticket or to the logs? And if so, are you bringing those in as well? Each company these days has dozens, if not hundreds of SaaS applications. Are you bringing all those logs into your centralized SIM? PCI DSS mandates centralization of logs. I copied and pasted a quote from the V4 requirement 10.3.3. Audit log files, including those, including those for external facing technologies are promptly backed up to a secure central internal log server or other me media that is difficult to modify. With all the SaaS products out there, I would wager that no PCI company is actually abiding by this. Additionally, well, that's probably how they can say that, you know, nobody's ever in compliance with PCI that ever gets hacked. <laughs> yeah, because then they go back and they find, oh, all these SaaS services or servers you didn't know you had. Not to mention, that would be crazy expensive. If you're like, this seems super general. Like if you're bringing in all of your, like it doesn't even say specified audit log files or that's why there's got to be more yeah. there. I haven't dug or, into the PCI requirements, but I can't. Yeah, or be. according to policy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, define audit log, you know, define what you want out of that log. I mean, that's pretty broad. Yep. Although I've also seen policies in the past that have been overly broad or policies that are written as kind of hopeful, like we're trying to do this, that could get you in trouble too. So they make the comment as well that if you simply leave the logs where they are, there'll be no guarantee they'll be there when you need them. They might rotate, attackers might delete them. They may not be storing what you think they're storing. I've seen that several times in the past where a log doesn't actually store information you think it should be. For example, how do I describe this? We had a tool that would remove emails from inboxes for us. Cool tool. We discovered, I discovered after using it for a bit that it does not log a audit trail of what emails are removed. So the vendor said that that was for privacy purposes. 
So you couldn't see the subject. You could just see like some number of emails were removed, but you can't see what specifically was removed. So may not may not be logged in what you think should be logged. You know, either they don't understand what privacy, what, you know, what's necessary for privacy, or that was an excuse for them not logging. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I was that yeah. doesn't make any sense. It was yeah, because those are the, theoretically those are all bad emails that are being removed. They own. They're owned by the company. Mm. It's company data. Yeah. There's no expectation of privacy with using company system, company data on company systems. Yeah. So typically, for now, anybody who's familiar with SIM and log storage processes, you determine which logs to bring in, either via policy or, you know, some other some other kind of high level document that says what you're going to log. Then you can create a logging standard for each source. Then IT goes and configures the logs according to the logging standard. Then you forward the new standardized log to the SIM. Then you normalize the log to match the SIM, the common information model, although hopefully the SIM will recognize it for you. And that's a reasonable amount of work to do for a finite series of log sources. You know, Windows logs, Unix logs, firewall logs, DHCP, DNS, authorization, Active Directory logs. You know, once you get up to a dozen or so log sources, like that's a pretty reasonable amount of work for any small, medium-sized company. You know, if you're a big corporation, you may have a whole team dedicated to bringing in, you know, tens or hundreds of log sources. But, but the reality is, is even mid-sized companies now have, you know, 50 to 100 log sources. So Anton is predicting some type of centrally managed but distributed query and logging engine in the future. So unfortunately, this is, this is a very kind of, this is not a very concrete post. Well, I, I think he's this. I think what he's he's bringing up is a concern for larger organizations. Mm -hmm. So I think because everybody is already grappling with the expense of logging and normalizing and everything like you just talked about, yeah. what they've already got. And he is looking down the road saying, well, as this goes forward, this is going to get more and more difficult as organizations get bigger and bigger. And I think, you know, when you're talking about large organizations, he has a, a a decent point that log management is going to continue to get difficult along this goes on. But I would say on average, this is not something places are going to need to worry about. You know, when you consider that if organizations only got bigger and more complex rather than on average, that there were more businesses rather than larger businesses, then most businesses are not huge. Most are less than 500 employees. Now, assuming in a small business, you do not have hundreds of systems or applications per employee, then you would not need to scale that are going to lead to this type of issue in the logs. You know, the average number of employees for companies over 500 is 3,416. The average number for companies below 500 are less than 345. Now, Assuming that you don't have like a hundred systems per employee, that's not a whole lot of log sources or applications that you're going to need to actually keep track of. So I think this, this is a growing concern for larger organizations and, and organizations that are particularly system heavy, but not for the average business in America today. So it's funny you mentioned that because that actually kind of, I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast or not, but I'm pretty sure we've talked about it. I've definitely gotten there's a feeling of 
there's a dichotomy and like incident response and EDR between like tech companies and well-funded companies and then everybody else where everybody else is using vendors like CrowdStrike and Carbon Black to handle kind of their EDR. But then you see talks at conferences of these companies talking about like their homegrown EDR system that, you know, you can execute queries like a database and run all this stuff. And like Microsoft talking about their every analyst with a Jupyter notebook running data science analysis queries. Like it sounds like you're describing kind of the same thing where the, the well-funded companies and the big funding companies are going to be like orders of magnitude more sophisticated in there, which I guess makes sense. They have a lot more money and the threats are a lot tougher, bigger, higher for them as well. So for large organizations, I think even in the, even with large organizations, he might be thinking about this the wrong way. Oh, so bossy. I mean, is every large organization is really, uh, really just one thing? Or is it more like it's a symbiotic system of multiple things rather than a single organism? So, so maybe you identify what parts, what parts there are and monitor those parts as individual things and then the boundaries between them. You know, should you really be pushing centralized logging for Azure and AWS together if they were different things within your org? So, you know, if you were using Azure for your brick and mortar stores and AWS for your online sales, you know, maybe you monitor those things as different things. I mean, those may not be great examples because you have unified inventory and payment system, but I think you you kind of get where I'm going with that. That correlating events between those different things, different cloud providers may not make sense. So maybe you set up logging for a business unit or some other logical division of the business with the the associated monitoring, and then maybe do some kind of monitoring across those units to see if there's a, a pattern for what's going on in the overall organization, rather than saying, okay, well, we have a business, so we're going to monitor the whole thing as a business instead of saying, well, this is actually a different thing over here, and we're going to monitor that as a smaller thing, and this over here is a smaller thing also. And what goes on over here doesn't necessarily need, should be correlated against what possibly could go on over here because of various reasons, with whether it's geographical boundaries, logical boundaries, or different systems or, or whatever. Because if you correlate an event on system X, and there's another event that happens on system Y, if those systems have no real relationship to each other, could those pop, those events, what's the likelihood of those two events actually being related to overall nefarious activity in, in uh, that's taking place in either one of them? Fair enough. Uh, so I think it's just something to think about as, as organizations get larger and more complex, do you necessarily have to bend to that complexity versus trying your own method of simplification for the adapt uh, to adapt to the changing circumstances. I think too many people get locked into rigid thinking about the way that they've done things. And just because that scales up doesn't need you necessarily have to scale it in the same way. I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. I think that, the, the problems facing large organizations are so different than those facing small and mid-sized organizations with the exception of the SaaS problem. Like that, I think is equally, equally an issue for all orgs. Yeah. Because SaaS doesn't log properly. Virtually, uh, virtually <laughs> no, no, virtually no SaaS solution logs properly. And this actually just came up 
uh, in a conversation I had with uh, a couple other people uh, earlier this week that, you know, there's a shared accountability model, but not a shared responsibility, or I'm sorry, there's a shared responsibility model, but not a shared accountability model when you're talking about cloud solutions. And yet they log as if it's only responsible and not accountable. So you're, regardless of what happens in whatever that cloud solution is, Ultimately, the customer is always 100% accountable for the failures of that solution to do whatever it is or not do whatever it is for its customers. And they have to bear the brunt of that accountability. And if this, if those cloud providers fail to provide the logs like Microsoft, for instance, that we just talked about, failing to provide those logs, that doesn't help you out of the bind when they've made a mistake and your organization is accountable for the actions that that cloud provider did or did not do. So I don't think there's any specific actionable item on here. No, but it's something that's something to start thinking about as you know, all the centralized logging and uh, licensing gets more and more expensive. Certainly not getting any cheaper. All righty. And the last article for today is France passes new bill allowing the police to remotely activate cameras on computer on citizens phones. This comes to us from Gizmodo. This seems totally normal just another day. So France has passed a new bill that allows the police to remotely access suspects, cameras, microphones, and GPS on cell phones and other devices, quote unquote. So suspects, not, you know, they just, just think that there's, there's a problem. They don't know that there's a problem. So the police can activate cameras and microphones to take video and audio recordings of suspects. The bill supposedly only applies to suspects in crimes that are punishable by a minimum of five years in jail. And professions considered sensitive, including doctors, journalists, lawyers, judges, and of course, members of the government, (laughs) can't be targeted under the law. So that's a big shocker there that they exempted themselves from this law. So surprised. So if this thing is really only for crimes that are punishable by five years in jail, let's say they turn it on, they collect evidence of the crime, but they can't, they don't collect any evidence that meets that, that indicates that the crime is taking place that meets that five-year threshold. Do they just throw that data out because it hasn't meet the five-year? I don't think so. Uh, so Of course they're going to assume They could just, for the reasons of doing the collection, say, oh, well, we thought he was doing X, which is a five-year minimum. Even though it, it that they knew that was not true. Yeah. Now, the 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 justice minister, minister Eric Dupont Moretti, claimed that the new provision would only affect a few dozen cases a year. And I find that surprising because they're going to say, "Oh, well, they only they only suspect that the number of the people to commit crimes that carry a five year sentence happen only a dozen a couple of dozen times a year." And if that's the case, that's only going to apply to a you know a few dozen times a year. Is this even really needed? If it's that few of cases, now they've 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 added an amendment uh, that orders uh, judge approval for any surveillance conducted under the scope of the bill, and limits the duration to six months. But at the time uh, this was written, it that had not uh, been officially added yet. Yeah, I'm actually curious. I mean, because they should be able to look at this pretty easily and see how many crimes are committed that have that five-year sentence. This is for all of France? I, hmm. Yeah. 
And this, this, well, this comes on the heel of the 2021 law that was passed in France that would expand the front, the, the police's use of monitoring civilians using drones to supposedly protect officers from increased protester violence. But to be honest, I think this whole thing is fantasy. I mean, how do they expect to implement this? Are they going to force all phones in France to have applications installed that are going to grant them these rights? Are they going to force the OS vendors to make changes to their operating systems? Uh, I mean, are, are the phone manu- would the phone manufacturers even go along with this? I mean, Apple just told the UK government that they would pull iMessage and FaceTime from service, you know, pull those services from Britain if the Brits encryption backdoor law passes. So they had 682 murders. I don't know what year this is, but like that alone, that's got to have a five-year sentence minimum. And that alone is over the few dozen times a year. Well, maybe they don't investigate murder. Although, yeah, or maybe it's the doctors, journalists, lawyers, judges, and MPs that are committing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there were 600 murders last year, but only two <laughs> of them would have fallen under this law because <laughs> most of the murders were done by the people in government. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that actually does. You know, I don't even, so the, I don't, maybe, you know, maybe this is the thing where they, uh, you know, I was thinking that, that you know, Apple's not going to go along with this. I don't know if the Android vendors are going to go along with this. I wonder if there's some, this was a lobbying effort by a, a French handset manufacturer because they're willing to go along with it and say, well, everybody's got to buy this French phone now because that's the only one that's can, can be monitored for these things. I know could whole whole thing could be some kind of profit making scam, but overall, I think this, like I said, the whole thing is fantasy because bureaucrats don't understand how technology works. And they, they watch, you know, live free or die or ghost in the shell and think, oh well, you can just hack and connect any <laughs> device you want. It's magic. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I I wonder if they already can do this, and this is just some confirmation that they can. Well, if they can, you can guarantee that the NSA would be all up in their knickers to find out how they got it done. Well, that's what I'm wondering is I'm wondering if they're using like an NSA or an intelligence service. Or maybe they plan on deploying, um, what's that Israeli company's software, the Pegasus <laughs> stuff to everybody's phone in all of France. I don't know. I just, just your, because your point stands, like, how do they know? It's a, It's weird that they're saying we're going to be doing this without any you know ability to actually do it i don't know but uh, i think if, you know if this thing passes you could probably expect the french to set a whole bunch of shit on fire <laughs> they're good at that <laughs> which they do a lot you know every government would want to do this though like i said so if, they, if france pulls this off i think the u.s government's being looking hard at how they got it done and probably try to pull the same thing off here but there's nothing we can do but wait and see how this plays out and see if they try to jump the pond with it or not. Because it might start in France and then move to Britain, which already does a whole bunch of heinous things, like I said, with that backdoor encryption stuff, and then it move from Britain to us. But like I said, this is, I think this is more fantasy than reality. I don't think they'll be able to technically ex- execute on this one. So not there's yet. a kind of a silver lining in that. And on that note, we're all out of articles for today. So thank you for joining us. And follow us at Serengeti Sick on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.